Rex, I greet you. I'm Joel. Welcome to Heart City Church. Any of you just joining us? Uh, boy, I'm still on kind of a high from last week. It was pretty exciting as three of our children were baptized. It was exciting to see the promise offered and then to imagine what God might do through these young lives. Let's keep praying for them, asking God to bless their journeys. Those baptisms are so great. Let's just imagine we were going to have another one today. In fact, a baby baptism. Wouldn't that be great? Mom and a dad would come bring their infant forward to receive God's sign. We love baby baptisms, right? Right? Amen. Amen. Oh, I love them. Come on. I love the joy afterwards as well. Can you imagine if we had one, you know, guys patting dad on the back, you know, others coming around past the baby. Now imagine if one of our elder men here, with wide eyes and a huge smile, came up for the baby. And he took the baby in his arms, then announced he had a revelation, a word from God. I know we're Presbyterian, just go with me here. <laughs> All right? And he takes the child in his arms, and he begins to weep joyfully and says, Oh, thank you, God, for now I have seen my salvation in this child that'd be something right <laughs> and then he turns to amazed mom and he looks her right in the eyes and he says this there's more behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your heart and your soul also, and so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. That would be a real mood killer, wouldn't it? <laughs> Probably freak everybody out. Mom would be like, give me my baby back, right? How do you think mom would feel to hear that this is her child's destiny? Well, have no fear. That's never going to happen here <laughs> because it already did happen. You see, this is no story. It's actually what happened when eight-day-old eight Jesus was brought into the temple by Mary and Joseph. And an old man named Simeon took the child, was moved in his spirit, thanked God, and then he said, this child is going to divide Israel. And he's going to face opposition of the worst kind. Oh, and Mary, you're going to feel it distinctly your heart, your soul is going to be pierced right through as God reveals what is inside every single human heart around. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would turn our world to a war zone? Welcome to Matthew chapter 2. Please turn in your Bibles or on your devices or it's printed in your bulletins. To Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 13. Now hear the word of our God. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Ah, Heavenly Father, we come to a an unsettling text, but you've given it to us for our good. So we ask and pray that you'll send your spirit, help us to understand the coming of the Christ child and what that means for us. Lord Jesus, we ask right now that you will take your place in the pulpit and reveal yourself and all your benefits. We ask in your name, amen. Well, let's get right to it. Pastor Joel, what in the world are you doing? We just lit the peace candle. It's Christmas Eve, and you're reading about maniac evil dictators, mass murder, and refugees. Why'd you decide to become Pastor Grinch today? Well, I'm going to blame it on Matthew, because this is how he ends his Christ child narrative. Matthew wants us to see what it means that Christ has come into the world. And it's not only the best of times, joy to the world, peace on earth. It's also the worst of times. After the sermon, we're going to sing the song, Joy to the World. There's actually a line in that song that says, No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Does anybody know where that, that line about the thorns infesting around, where in the Bible does that come from? Genesis, Genesis 3, chapter, verse 17. Right after Adam and Eve believe the serpent, buy into the lie, and disobey Father God, God curses the ground and says it's going to bear thorns and thistles. And we all know this, don't we? Our polluted planet is past fixing. Let's just be real. Our labors, they don't turn out for us as we hoped, nor do they last, and neither do we. For we're dust, and to dust we will return. Here's our situations, friends, our situation. We're in a sin-cursed world under the serpent's sway. We're in a sin-cursed world under the serpent's sway. 
But there's good news, because right before this, Genesis 3.15, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And Christmas, friends, is the celebration of the arrival of that promised seed and the start of his blessings flowing far as the curse is found. I want you to notice how baby Jesus, though he's entirely passive in this text, he's actually impacting the world. His blessings are flowing. I mean, last week we met the wise men. They traveled like at least probably a thousand miles from the Far East. And now in this chapter, we see the Christ child, the second half, he's the traveler. Matthew 1, if you look back, we had a whole lot of names, right? Just tons and tons of names. And then names actually identifying the child and his mission. Chapter 2, it's all about places. Far East, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Egypt, Judea, Galilee, Nazareth. Why? Because this king came, his identity, in order to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. However, that doesn't happen like that. So we're going to look at what Christ's coming means, what it brings under three headings. First, Christ's coming brings dark days and division. Second, Christ's coming brings fight and flight. And third, Christ's coming brings that reverse to the curse. So let's start with dark days and divisions, which begin with King Herod. Now, up to this point, everybody who's been coming to adore Jesus, you look in Luke's gospel as well, they're coming, they're coming to adore him. They're excited. But now we see folks with the exact opposite response, coming to destroy Jesus. And not just indifferent, they're furiously opposed, pursuing him to destroy him. What we see is division, people on one of two sides. We start with Herod, also known as Herod the Great. By the way, he wasn't even a Jew, but he sure loved ruling over them. And he did it with an iron fist and religious deception. When he took power, he actually had half of the Sanhedrin killed and replaced them with his puppets. And those were the religious leaders. So basically, he put in all of his pastors, a bunch of his. You know, and to pretend he was pro-God, he expanded the temple to make it glorious. But he was all about promoting Herod. Not, he was not pro-God. Not adoration of God. And actually, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We hear about Archelaus, who takes over after his daddy's death. And one of his very first acts was to slaughter thousands of Jews on Passover. See why Joseph realized, it'd probably be better for me not to hang around here and head off to Galilee in verse 22. Now, we could just dismiss these guys as egomaniacs. Friends, we need to see there's something far more sinister here. For homework, this is your homework this week, go home and read Revelation 12. It's a book at the end of the Bible, Revelation, where you get these vivid illustrations of greater spiritual realities, these invisible spiritual realities that are greater than this world. And in chapter 12, we meet a pregnant woman, and she's about to give birth to a male child who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Who do you think that is? Yes, Christ Jesus. Psalm 2, it's actually quoting. And this woman's about to give birth, and then a red dragon appears. Poised, jaws wide open, before this woman in labor, waiting for the child to be birthed so he can devour it. It's a graphic scene. That's Satan. See, he knows that this child is the one that God is sending to crush his head, and he's going to do anything he can to stop it. 
fact, since Genesis 3, Satan is ever seeking to destroy the seed. Now, friends, Satan is not a literal baby-eating dragon. He's far worse. Far worse. Satan is a supernatural, cosmic, evil spirit who hypnotizes humans to do his devouring for him. The Bible actually tells of many rulers like Herod who are seeking to destroy the sea. They're coming against God's people. Remember actually the first guy? We hear about him in the very next book of the Bible, Exodus. He actually wears headgear that make him look like a serpent. Pharaoh. Pharaoh of Egypt, who enslaves the Israelite people in order to snuff out the seed. Then he begins to throw all the male babies in the Nile. Herod's doing a repeat performance. Do you see that? He's Satan's new pawn in this day. And Herod actually thinks he's self-serving. It's all about, no, he's Satan-serving. He sends his soldiers to Bethlehem in that region to murder every male child, two years old and younger. This is a dark scene. Can you envision the horror when families see the dust kicking up and then they see Herod's soldiers coming towards town? This sleepy settlement is suddenly saturated with screams, swords, slaughter, and then sorrow. Mortified moms trying to hide and hush their babies, their baby boys to dodge detection. Fathers being held back and watch as their seed is destroyed in front of their eyes. I'm not going to get more graphic than that, but I want to just consider this question. Does Christ's coming feel like peace on earth to Bethlehem? There's no experience of peace this day. Nobody's singing joy to the world, the Lord has come. Matthew actually quotes Jeremiah 31, 15. Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. He's recalling this scene of these Babylonian soldiers who have kidnapped all their kids and are taking them off into exile. 600 years prior to this, countless Israelite mothers are grieving their boys being taken off never to be seen again. And now this scene is being replayed in little Bethlehem. It turns out that Mary is not the only one to have her heart pierced. How many Bethlehem mothers were forever traumatized by this? Christ's coming, Matthew's telling us, does not bring everyone peace and joy, but instead hurt from haters. Why is this? Why is this? I think we have to remember the question of the wise men last week. What did they ask? Where is he who has been born king? Where is he who has been born king? You see, there's a new king in Bethlehem. The wise men came searching. What did you come searching here this morning? A teacher? A savior? Did you come searching for a king? This claim to new authority brings not peace. But, but hostility, because not everybody wants him as king. And this isn't just Herod. Jesus, when he's an adult, you remember him saying in Luke 12, 51, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. But I tell you, division. Fathers against sons, daughters against mothers. Wait a minute. Come on. Jesus, the angels proclaimed peace on earth when the, to the shepherds when you came. Yes. A vertical peace. A vertical peace for all who would come 
and bow the knee and adore King Jesus. But they were not proclaiming horizontal peace. And some of us saw this all too well. How many of us are going to gather with family over holidays and you want to talk about Jesus and what he's doing in your life? And they don't want any part of that. Or maybe you can talk about Jesus as your savior, as your friend, but the moment you begin to press kingship on them, they're going to say, that, that's enough. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Realize most of our loved ones are singing Bon Jovi. It's my life. I live life on my own terms, or Sinatra, my way. You see, your adoration of his kingship and their rejection brings family division. Remember what Rex read in John 3? Jesus coming into the world actually causes all men. It's not that Jesus came to judge the world. It causes all men to divide into one or two camps. Those who love the light, obey Jesus and adore him as king. And those who prefer wickedness, do not like the light, prefer to remain in the darkness. This is our post-Christmas world. So let's now see how Christ's coming brings fight or flight now for you as the believer. First, you have these wise men who went to bed that night, had a wonderful night, saw the king, every intention to go to Herod in the morning, and one or maybe all of them, they have this dream warning them, do not go to Herod, do not go to Herod. Now time out. I don't want any of you children using this verse. You may have a dream this week or next week warning you not to go to school, okay? <laughs> don't try that with your parents. That dream's not from God. It probably was just pizza or snacks from the night before, okay? You see, God gave us his word and his spirit. These are all sufficient guides. Dream guidance is unique and not a source we can trust. You only see it at the very, very beginning of the New Testament in this very unique time period. Five of the six dreams you find are right here, the beginning of Matthew. These wise men, they actually need extra help because why? They don't actually have a Bible. Remember, they came to Herod. They had to get the scripture for him to know where Jesus was. And they also have no clue about Herod. These guys wake up, and they know it was not pizza they ate last night that caused this dream. They actually had every retention, intention of returning to Herod, but now they're told to take flight, which meant they had to first fight that urge to ignore God's warning. Doesn't that happen? God's warning comes, or God tells us something, and there's always this fight in us. They probably want to go to Herod. They're likely going to get a reward, right? Some thanks. And then they can head home on the easy path, the path they planned. Not only do these wise men have to deny their own wisdom, they actually have to admit they're completely blind to Satan's schemes. And they have to reroute and take a hard path, dodging soldiers, who knows what. Their plans are ruined. This is normal for the believer. This is normal. When you decide to bow the knee to King Jesus, you're going to find your plans change an awful lot. Anybody here found that they're not where they expected to be? <laughs> A thing to remember is that God's way will prove better than yours. As subjects of the true king, you may find yourself on a path you didn't choose, but living by faith is believing that all things work together for those who are called according to God's purpose and love him. And that's what they discover as they take flight and they depart by another way. We actually don't know the specifics of what happened to them, but Matthew gives us some clues here. Twice after the wise men depart on a different path, warning messages are given to Joseph to take the child and flee. 
It's the same word in the Greek for departed, used for Jesus' path. You see, the subjects of King Jesus are being led through this world the same way that Jesus was being led through this world. I guess we see that Tom Petty's uh, you don't have to live like a refugee is not true of the Christian. And that's exactly what happens to the wise men, to Joseph and Mary, and it will happen to us as well. Let's actually consider Joseph. He too has a dream where an angel tells him to rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, if the wise men got some hardship, that's nothing compared to Joseph. The moment Joseph took Jesus into his life, his life got hard. Remember, this isn't his biological child. His head has to be just spinning for the first three years of having Jesus in his life. That's often true. If you take a hold of Jesus in your life, your head's going to be spinning. God says, go to Egypt right now, middle of the night. What do we learn here? We're learning that the world is actually a dangerous place for subjects of King Jesus. I was actually just reading about missionaries to a Muslim nation where the church was bombed. And in our culture, if we continue the path we're going, one day we may face persecution. Would you be surprised? I'll go further. There are places where, if you remain there, Jesus will be taken from you. There are often places that appear to be life-giving. Places around here, they appear to be life-giving, appear to be Christian, appear to be, but they're not. And God often calls us to flee, to take flight to less comfortable places during our Christian pilgrimage. At that point, we have to trust our hands, that we lie in God's hands. He's going to be our safety and take flight. And we have to fight, like Joseph. Think about it. Egypt is the last place any faithful Jew wants to go, especially if your name is Joseph, right? Joseph had to fight every impulse to go everywhere else, anywhere else. I mean, he lives north of here. I bet he was gritting his teeth every mile on his way down to Egypt. One of the ways you know that Jesus is your king is that you're constantly fighting to stay in the light, constantly fighting to stay on the path God wants you. When you become a Christian, it's, it's, it's incredible. Suddenly you find the things that you want to do, now you can't do. And some of the things you did before, you don't do anymore. You simply want to obey because you adore Jesus and you know that he's worth following. Sometimes that means you have to fight your old impulses and that means your own heart is pierced. Because we find that there's a division inside. Solzhenitsyn was right. The vision between good and evil lies in every human heart. We talked about the division between light and darkness in the world after Christ comes. That actually remains true in the heart of every believer. Let's be real. Sometimes we really like Jesus as our Savior, but we don't like him as our king because of what he demands. Mick Jagger was right. We all have sympathy for the devil. Even after you submit to Jesus, after he begins changing your heart, there's still a part of your heart that does not want this man to rule over you. The Bible calls it our flesh. 
And by God's grace and by his spirit, we have to fight it. So sometimes we actually fight by flight. You find yourself in a situation where you know this temptation, it's going to be too much. The word is not stand strong and be fight and fight. No. When temptation comes, the word is flee. Flee. Sin is crouching at the door. It will get you. There are times when we can't take flight, right? Or we feel that our heart is pierced. I shouldn't have spoken that way. I shouldn't have looked at that. I shouldn't have pressed that button. That heart pain is actually, when you feel that, that's God's gift. God's gift leading you to repentance unto life if you will obey. If you ignore it, when you ignore that heart pain over sin, you know what you're doing? You're pouring concrete into your heart. And it will get harder and harder till you don't feel it anymore. And you won't be able to escape apart from a miracle from God. I think everyone here needs to ask themselves, is there fight and flight in my life? That's a test of whether Christ's coming has actually impacted your life. You're going to find that being a Christian is the hardest thing in the world, except for the alternative. It's never easy to be a Christian. It is simple, trust and obey, but it's not easy. Joseph <laughs> finally gets to leave Egypt. Yay! He gets Israel and <gasps> warned again in a dream to flee. I'll be honest, if I'm married at this point, I'm never letting my husband go to sleep again. Here, Joseph, have another coffee. You, every time you go to sleep, I end up having to pack all the bags again. So let's move on to our last point. Christ's coming, this is a good part, brings a reverse to the curse. I want to note three ways. Find a first reversal just looking at where Jesus goes. He begins in Bethlehem. This is a glorious place. This is the royal city. David, the great King David, was born here. And then he goes to a place couldn't be any different, more different. Egypt, a land of pagan idolatry, slavery, death. And then to Galilee, which is known as Galilee of the Nations. It's this cultural mixing pot of all kinds of things. And then Nazareth. Nazareth is nowheresville. It's basically a dump, all right? That's why Nathaniel says, when he hears Jesus, the Messiah came from Nazareth, no way, nothing good comes from that place. Get Jesus, he calls a dump like Nazareth home. What do we learn here? Well, let's look at our memory verse at the bottom of our page, underneath our sermon text. Let's recite our memory verse of the month again. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does that verse tell us? That the Son of God reverses the curse by moving into your neighborhood. Into your neighborhood. Jesus' life begins with him living among all these nations that God has actually cursed. And Jesus' earthly life ends with him saying, go make disciples of all the nations. Jesus coming, do you see? It brings an end to the serpent Satan. By the way, read Revelation 20. What is he doing? He's deceiving the nations. Jesus is bringing an end to that. And this ought to encourage us no matter where you're from. There's nobody, there's no neighbor who has to live under the sin of curse and death. There's nobody who is too far gone. 
Jesus can change any heart. Jesus' blessing is available to all the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me give us an illustration now to show a second reversal that Matthew shows us. Have you read any of Dorothy Sayers' novels? All right, I see one hand, a couple hands there. Dorothy Sayers was this brilliant author, playwright, critic in the 20th century. She's actually one of the first women to ever receive a degree from Oxford University. She's best known for a series of detective novels starring the Lord Peter Whimsey. Peter, he's this really bright fellow, but his life is so sad. He actually suffers from World War I trauma, and he can't find happiness in any of the women that he's pursuing in his life. Each and every story is just like this relational train wreck that leaves him hurting and lonely poor Peter. Until Dorothy Sayers introduces a new character into the series, Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane. Harriet, she wins Peter's heart. She marries him. And he finds new meaning and purpose. He becomes a better man. It transforms his whole life for the better, this Harriet. There's kind of a few interesting things about this woman who comes on the scene. Number one, she's one of the first women to ever receive a degree from Oxford University. And she also happens to be the writer of detective novels. Hmm, that's kind of coincidental. Do you see what Dorothy Sayers has done? She wrote herself into the story to save the sad soul she created. Earlier we saw in Genesis 3 where humanity rebelled and plunged themselves into misery. Now God the author could have put down the pen right then. He could have closed the book at Genesis 3. But instead of closing the book, God began to inspire prophets to keep writing. And he kept writing, kept writing. He began to include a new hero that was coming who would bring us, rescue us out of our sin and misery, out of our loneliness, sorrow, in fact, the prophet Isaiah gets about the clearest vision of a boy who would be born of a virgin. And his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now Matthew tells us that prophecy was about Jesus. Do you see what God did? To save those he created, God decided to write himself into our story. The Bible is all about Jesus. Jesus himself says in John 5, 39 to these Pharisees, like you search the scriptures for eternal life, but they're all about me. That means we can't read our Bibles from a self-centered view. How does this meet my need? What does this mean to me? How can I be a better person? Uh -uh. We read the Bible to see how it points to Jesus. Let me show you how Matthew gives us actually another lens, and I think this is really cool. In verse 15, Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I called my son, and Jesus fulfilled this. If you're a Jew at this time, this makes zero sense to you, because it's not a future prophecy. It's a past fact. Hosea is stating a past historical event. Hosea is telling the Israelites that God sent Moses to call Egypt, Israel, his son, out of Egypt. How can Matthew turn around and say something that's a past event is now fulfilled in Jesus? You know what Matthew's saying? The Bible was not written for the Israelites in the first place, or for you. The Bible was first written for Jesus. You ever thought of that? It was written in the first place for the true Son of God who would succeed where every other Son of God failed. 
It means that the Bible is not only about Jesus, the Bible is for Jesus. It's his story. God is sovereignly sending angels around and moving baby Jesus around because it's his story first. And then when Jesus gets older, what is he doing? He's taking up the scriptures and he's reading the scriptures and he's fulfilling the scriptures. He's obeying the scriptures. So what difference does that make, Joel? Well, I can go out tonight and I can point to the moon. And I can tell you a lot of things about the moon, the brightness of the moon, the impact, the size. But my finger pointing to the moon is not the moon, right? I can also open my Bible and I can point out Jesus facts. I can tell us a lot about Jesus, his life, his story, what he's done. And that's good stuff. We should, that's not bad. That's good. But a lot of talk about Jesus can just be pointing to Jesus, but that's not Jesus. Do you get what I'm saying? There's all the difference in the world between me going out and pointing at the moon and me going out to an open field on a full moon night and experiencing the moonlight and seeing the luminescence just envelop my body and just change the environment around me. If we read our Bibles and it's only about Jesus, that's good. But if we read our Bibles and realize it was for Jesus and we realize Jesus was reading this before me. And as I read this and realize I can't fulfill this or I failed at this, but then I realize, but Jesus read this first and he fulfilled it for me. And how about those 20 promises I gave us a few weeks ago? All these promises about how I am in Christ. We can read our Bibles with Jesus by the power of his spirit and actually see how, you know what, this is true of me because I am in him, because I'm in spirit in Christ. Our Bibles are a personal invitation to know Jesus in a real way, not just to point to him and say, wow, that's good, but there's more. It helps us to adore all he did, but all the more when you realize you've been invited into his story, because it's not just our story, it's his story first. I'll leave you to think on that. I know I need to land the plane. There's a final reversal, and I want to give this to us who might be perhaps this, this Christmas experiencing the worst of times. And maybe if it's not true now, maybe it will be for you going forward. Bethlehem, the wise men, Joseph, it was Christmas, was the worst of times for them. So I want to close with John Piper, who has this incredible poem called The Innkeeper, where he imagines an adult Jesus going and visiting Bethlehem two weeks before his crucifixion. <clears throat> now, Piper is using holy imagination. This is not scripture. He talks about Jesus, who's a complete stranger to the innkeeper. He goes and meets him. His name is Jacob, this guy who sheltered him when he was an infant. And Jesus gets to the inn, and he finds it's a very sad scene. Jesus then says, do you remember the time a long time ago of Caesar's census tax? And old Jacob winces. And he says, our north wind's cold, our desert's dry. Do fishes swim and ravens fly? I do. A grim and awful year it was for me when God ordained that strange decree. Jacob tells this stranger that he has been alone for 30 years. His two sons, Joseph and baby Ben, had been murdered by Herod's soldiers. His wife, Rachel, died trying to protect the one baby. 
and he holds up his arm, which is only a stump because he lost his arm trying to stop the soldiers. And Jacob looks at this stranger and he says, I lost my arm, my wife, my sons, the cost for housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear and never come to help? They sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. The stranger replied, I am the boy who Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life and then God let me live my life. Oh, sorry. And took your wife. Ask me not why that one should live and another die. God's ways are high and you will know in time, but I have come to show you what God prepared the night. You made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks, they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too, and give them, Jacob, back to you with everything the world can store, and you will reign forevermore. Dear friends, Calvary's cross, which was the worst of all times, guarantees a great reversal of all your worst of times for anyone who chooses to house the Son of God. So I close with these two questions. Have you received the King? Has your heart prepared him room? Let's pray. Father God, the greatest marvel in human history is not how cruel life can be, but how you sent your son to enter into our agony to make a way for us to return to you, to worship and glorify you for all of eternity. Thank you. You're not a God who is far away when we suffer tragedy because you understand the pain of great loss because in your love you sent your son to endure torment and tragedy at Calvary's cross. If we have yet to know you as Father and your son Jesus as the great friend of sinners, we ask that you will send your spirit to give us new life, that we may fall down and adore our great King for all times. We confess our sins and ask you to forgive our unbelief and grant us tidings of comfort and joy in knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us no matter how hard our road is. And may we celebrate Christmas with, with new joy and help us, we pray, to spread the comfort of the gospel of your salvation in Jesus Christ, especially this Christmas season when we may have more opportunity than normal. We ask this in his name. Amen.